Well, good morning. My name is Rob Sweet. Uh, I heard one good morning, so thank you for that. Um, I'm one of our teaching pastors here at Fellowship, and I've been here uh, several times with you. Good to be back with you. I'm typically down at Franklin campus, so bring you greetings from that congregation. They're doing very well down at Franklin. Great to be back with you this morning in this study of Esther. Uh, we've been walking through it uh, in Franklin, just as you have in Brentwood. We are coming close to the end, so we'll finish out the text this morning, and then next week we'll close out the series with sort of a summary of the, uh, the book as a whole. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Esther chapter 10. Our tagline that we've been talking about, in fact, it's on the screen, in the left and right screens under the story of Esther, veiled providence visible faith, and we've been interacting with that and talking about what does that look like in our day, and I, I've been reflecting on that a lot as sort of, you know, the news um, has gotten worse and worse, you know, the things that Michael was alluding to earlier in, in his prayer, and uh, in fact, I got a text message a week ago. This was even before the most recent shooting in Dallas, and uh, this is from one of our congregants at Franklin, and he sent me this message last Sunday. I see suicide bombings over the past few hours killed 126 in Baghdad. As these incidents have ramped up, I want to ask what you tend to pray slash think slash do when you hear about these tragedies. How would you answer that? What do you pray slash think slash do when you hear of these tragedies? It, it, it's maybe it's just my perspective. I know others of you may feel the same way. It feels like things are starting to spin a little bit out of control. And in the midst of all of this, we're in this series by God's providence, but it's made me ask this question. Where is veiled providence in our day? All right, what is God up to? What, what's happening behind the scenes? Is there purpose to it? It feels like we're moving further and further and further away from God's design, from God's intent. And we come this morning in this study of Esther to the end of the story. And uh, it's a good time to reflect on that. And in fact, as I've had these questions that this uh, man texted me, as I've had those questions echoing in my head this week, and then we hear about another shooting in Dallas and the racial tensions and all that's going on, uh, I've been asking myself, where do we see God's providence? Where is this all going? And I got to a verse in chapter 10, we're going to take a deep dive on it in a few minutes, that I thought, that's helpful. That's helpful. In fact, I think there's something here in Esther 10 that's both a comfort for our time, and a challenge for our time. Because part of God's providence is for us to be here right now, alive in this day, living in the world as it is right now. I'll give you a, a fair warning, or for some of you, it'll, it'll be an exciting uh, thing that this is going to be a theologically deep sermon. The more I got into the text, the more I thought, you know, there's some theological concepts that I really think we need to unpack. But don't be scared by the idea of theology. Theology is always eminently practical because what you think about God and what you think about what's happening in the world as it relates to God is going to govern your actions always. So it'll be both theological and, Lord willing, very practical as well. I will spend most of our time in verse 3. Uh, we'll, we'll skim through the first couple of verses and just make a couple comments. So let's read Esther 10, verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength, and the full account of the greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and 
Persia. Interestingly, the book of Esther ends in a very similar tone, very similar note to how it started. If you can think back that far, several months ago, it started by talking about the greatness and splendor of the king. And here it ends very similarly. We call that in uh, biblical studies an inclusio. It's a literary device. It's common in Hebrew literature where something's introduced, a theme or topic or idea, and then something else in the middle, and then that same thing is reintroduced. And here we have an inclusio that brackets the entire book of Esther. But here's the difference. When Ahasuerus' greatness and splendor is brought up at the end of the story, it's mostly to point to the greatness and accomplishments of someone else, a Jew named Mordecai. And you'll see the way the story ends is all about Mordecai. And we'll talk a lot more about Mordecai in verse 3. Now, some actually argue that because of the way the book ends, the story of Esther is actually more about Mordecai than it is about Esther. In other words, he's the hero. He's the main character, not Esther. I'm not so sure. I think you can make a good argument for either way. I think there's a reason why, and over, over time, the book has been come to know, uh, known as the book of Esther. And yet, and yet... This man, Mordecai, was very important and extremely important to Jewish history. And we'll find out through verse 3 why he was so important. Just a couple other brief notes before we get there. Uh, the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. Right, So the author is saying, hey, you can read all about this in this other source. This is what we call an extra-biblical source. It was an historical document. We don't have access to it anymore. It would have been lost. You know, It wasn't cared for and copied from generation to generation as our biblical text was. It was probably a Jewish document, not a Persian document. So it would have been the history of this time from the Jewish perspective. And the reason I think that's most likely is the whole book of Esther is written from that perspective, and the audience of Esther were Jews. And so the narrator is saying, hey, you know, you can go read about this in this other source. They would have been familiar with this book, even though we no longer have it. What I think is interesting about verse 2 is the narrator intentionally uses the same formula that other biblical writers used when they talked about the kings of Israel and Judah. So if you think back to 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, which tells the history of all the kings of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, this formula is used where it says, you know, you know here's what happened with kings such and such. You know, all these things happen. And then at the end it says, and everything else that happened under his rule, is it not written in the Chronicles? Everything else that happened, is it not written in this other book? Is it pointing people? Now, why does the author choose to use the exact same formula, this time talking about Ahasuerus and Mordecai? I think, as you're going to see in verse 3, the intentionality of the author is to say, don't miss how important this man Mordecai turned out to be for our nation. He is honoring him. He's sort of putting him on the same level as the kings of old. Remember, this was a time when there were no kings right now for the nation of Israel. They're in exile still, yet Mordecai is serving almost like a king as second in command of the uh, empire of Persia. Why was he so important, Mordecai? Let's find out in verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. So this is, as Paul Harvey used to say, this is the rest of the story. Right? This is what happens. Mordecai stays as the prime minister of Persia. Imagine that. 
So Haman's position, when Haman was killed and you know, deposed, Mordecai is now raised up, parallel to how Esther was raised up when Queen Vashti was deposed. So you end the story with a Jewish queen and a Jewish prime minister over a massive pagan empire. Very significant. And we learn here that Mordecai was a great leader, a great governor. And we know that because of this little phrase, he sought the good of his people. And a second phrase, he spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. And this is what I want to dig into for the rest of the message, those two phrases. In fact, there's a word in each phrase that I want to do a deep dive on. And here's why it's important. What you realize about Mordecai when you start looking at him through a theological lens, not only was he a good public servant, but he was aligning himself with God's priorities. You might think of it this way. Mordecai was working in harmony with the providence of God. Mordecai had figured out what God is doing in the world, and he aligned himself with that. And I think if you and I hope to have any kind of impact on our culture, any kind of influence on the world, if we want to do anything other than just sort of sit back and wring our hands with all that's going on in our country and all that's going on in the world, we would be wise to study Mordecai. We would be wise to say there's something to this idea of seeking good. And there's something to this idea of, of um, speaking for the welfare of the people. And that's where I want to dig into. We'll take a deep dive into two Hebrew words. The first is the word good. It's translated into English good. And, and you'll see as I get into this why these two words matter to us. All right. Hebrew word is tov. T-O-V. Uh, if you have any Jewish relatives at all, you've heard mazel tov. All right. It's pronounced a little differently, but the last part, tov, Tov, mazel tov means good luck. It's actually technically not Hebrew, it's Yiddish, right? So you picture a good you know, Jewish grandmother, you know, you know, mazel tov, you know, good luck, et cetera. You hear it at weddings and things like this. It, it's this word tov. Now, just like in English, good means all manner of things. Same is true in Hebrew. So let me give you some examples of how we use the word good in English. You can have a good boy or good girl, right? It's a reference to right or moral behavior. You can eat a good sandwich. Now you're talking about a different kind of goodness, right? Now that's the taste or the quality of the sandwich. You can ride a good bike. That's probably a well-made bike, right? That, that's, that's nice to ride. You can have a good outcome with an endeavor or with circumstances in your life. And you can talk about good in contrast to evil. Now you're in the theological or in the philosophical realm. So it means all these different things. Same in Hebrew. But I want to take you back to the very first place in the Bible where the word good or is used. Who could tell me the book and chapter where we first see the word good? Yeah, yeah, you guys are good Bible students. Genesis chapter 1, all the way at the beginning. In fact, it only takes four verses in the narrative of Scripture before you see the Hebrew word tov, good. Genesis 1, 4, God saw that the light, which he had just made, was tov, was good. Now, this starts a rhythm throughout Genesis 1. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. Tov, tov, tov. Verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25. Then you get to 31. After the sixth and final day of, of creation, God creates mankind in his own image, male and female. He creates them. And then he looks at all that he has made, and God sees that it is 
very good. Tov me'od, you see. It, it is good, but, but even to a greater extent, it's very good. Here's the big idea. Tov describes God's design and intent for the world and his people. God could have chosen a lot of different words to describe his own creation, but he chose this little word, tov. Now fast forward to Mordecai. The summary of Mordecai's work as prime minister of Persia is he sought the tov of his people. What Mordecai is doing here is he's living out the design of human beings to be representative of God, to be image bearers of God. You see, it goes all the way back to creation. This idea of God's intent for creation and people is that things be tov, that they be tov me'od, very good. And Mordecai, to the best of his ability in the area of influence that God has given him, is pursuing the same things that God is pursuing through his work of providence. You see, Mordecai is serving in alignment with God's intent in creation and for his people. You see this in that other phrase as well, spoke for the welfare of his people. Now, I've got to talk a lot even more about this word welfare because if you think tov is a nice Hebrew word, uh, the word that's translated welfare is even better. Uh, if you're reading ESV or uh, several other translations, you won't see the word welfare. You'll see the word peace. Now, by the way, a good study tip if you're studying a passage of scripture, it's always helpful to read in multiple translations because you'll begin to get a nuance more for what the, the original language says. And in this case, you see, ah, NASB says welfare. ESV says, in other translations as well, say peace. What's going on here? The, the original language word must mean both. I'd say it does, and it means even more than both. It's the word shalom in Hebrew. Heard of that word? It's a common word. You know, Hebrew people, even to this day, will greet each other with this word, shalom. Uh, a friend of mine, I was talking to him, he, he lives in Atlanta, and he said, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I said, I'm preaching on shalom and other things. And he said, that's funny. He goes, I never really knew what that meant. I, I work out in a Jewish community center, even though I'm not Jewish. And every time I swipe my entrance card on the little computer screen, it says, shalom. <laughs> right? I just thought it meant, Hi. Oh, it means so much more. But here's the thing. It's usually translated peace, but it means so much more than that. In fact, the Hebrew word is used in the Old Testament 250 times. Less than one-third of the time does it mean peace in the sense of the absence of conflict. It typically means something broader, more beautiful than that. Shalom carries a lot of theological freight. It's one of the most important words in our Bibles. It's a word that you need to understand more fully. Shalom. What is it all about? Embedded in this common Hebrew term, shalom, is the concept of wholeness, of completeness, of harmony, of fulfillment. Shalom means everything stitched together the way that God intended it. Shalom means right relationships between man and God, 
right relationships between men and other human beings, right relationships between men and women, uh, uh, families flourishing, society flourishing, the economy flourishing, people getting along and, and not just not killing each other, but honoring one another, serving one another the way that God intended. It's creation made right under the authority of God. All that is there for shalom. So when a modern Hebrew person says shalom, what they're actually doing is they're longing for, they're wishing things were the way God intended them to be in the beginning in a state of shalom. Now think about this biblically as Christians. You read the entire Bible, you see shalom in full effect only in two places. The very beginning and the very end. Everything in the middle, I mean, literally from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20, everything in the middle is all broken shalom. It's all things not the way they're meant to be. If you think about shalom almost as a tapestry woven together, everything, right, every thread the way it's supposed to be, broken shalom is a tear in the fabric. In fact, I'd even say it this way. Once you understand shalom, you can begin to understand evil more completely. Because evil is anything that breaks shalom. Evil is anything that would, um, the way one theologian put it, vandalize shalom. Evil is things not the way they were meant to be. Broken relationships, catastrophes, either natural or otherwise, shootings in Dallas, terrorist attacks, uh, race relations that are starting to get to a boiling point. All this is evil. All this is broken shalom. Now, I was uh, teaching on this some time ago in, in, a, in another congregation, and uh, I thought, how can I visually illustrate the vandalism of shalom? And we had a member of our body who was a great artist, like, like many of you are in this room. We have a lot of artists in this fellowship. And uh, what we, we commissioned her to, to paint this massive painting that represented God's good creation, the way it was intended to be. And then when I was talking about Genesis 3 and the vandalism of Shalom and sin and evil entering the world, you know, I had this little bag and I, I pulled out a black can of spray paint. Right? And I started shaking this thing like, and they're thinking, no, you're not going to do this to this poor woman's work of art, right? You know, a thousand hours went into painting this thing, whatever. And sure enough, I, I just vandalized all over that thing, just covered it up. And there's this audible gasp in the room. You're like, hey, how could you do that? That's what happened to God's good creation when sin entered the world. And the resulting picture is where you and I live today. Now think about a vandalized work of art. You can still see glimpses of the original intent coming through, but it's not right. The beauty has been marred, and this is creation as you and I know it. And Mordecai said, I'm going to enter into that picture, and I'm going to seek tov, and I'm going to speak for shalom. I'm going to go back to God's original intent for this creation, as much power and authority as I have in this position that God has given, I'm going to seek the original work of art. He was acting in alignment with providence because as we know through the story of scripture, we know the beginning, but we also know the end. The end of all things is God taking his masterpiece and recreating it, making it new, 
erasing all of the vandalism and making it even more beautiful, more fulfilling, more shalom than even it was in the garden. That's Revelation 21, 22. We're in the middle, but there's a trajectory to providence, you see. It's going somewhere. That's the big idea behind Tov and Shalom. Mordecai says, I see what God wants and I'm gonna align myself with it as best as I can in an evil empire. He sought the good and he spoke for completeness, wholeness. Now, here's the lesson for you and me. God is at work. In fact, I'd say it this way. Despite how it feels right now, despite how it feels like we're further away from where God is going, God's providence is actively working toward good for his people and wholeness for his creation. Because that's the dream of God. That's the vision of God. Shalom. Good. Tov. That's where this is heading. There's a trajectory to providence. And we have to understand that we're at a point in line. We're one step closer today even than we were yesterday, regardless of how things seem or feel. Let me give you a couple of verses that will sort of play this out a little bit more. Uh, verses from our New Testament now that speak to similar concepts. Romans 8.28. You can turn there if you want. You don't necessarily need to. I'll read it. Familiar verse, right? I call this one of the coffee cup verses. You know, you find this on coffee cups. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you hear that? God's providence working all things together, even evil things, he's working them for good. Now, now we're in Greek, not Hebrew, but the word for good is the, the same idea as tov in Hebrew. He's working things together for good. But I wanna keep going in verse 29 because that's an important verse as well. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And I'll pause right there. In other words, the way that God is working all things together for good is through his son, Jesus. And he desires to conform human beings into the likeness of his son, who is the only one who was actually Tov. Jesus is the only human being that was ever fully good. No one is good but God himself. So here's the idea in this. What Paul is saying is the trajectory of providence is leading towards something that centers around Jesus. All things working together for good. That centers around the one who will reconcile all things. One more passage. Colossians 1.19. Now this is a beautiful picture of shalom in the New Testament. Colossians 1.19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things. You hear the shalom in that? Reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Here's how he's gonna do it. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Sounds a lot like shalom. In fact, one of Jesus' most important titles from Isaiah 9-6. He is the Prince of Peace. Hebrew word, shalom. You know, he's not just gonna cease, make wars cease. That's part of it. He's gonna bring about completeness. He's gonna bring about integration and wholeness. 
And you see that at the end of the story, right? There will be no more crying or pain or tears for the former things, broken shalom, will have passed away and all things will be made new. This is where the story is going. The purpose of providence is not just to sprinkle God's favorite people with blessings. That's not what the purpose and trajectory of providence is. The purpose of providence is to move creation forward toward the culminating point, which is all things made new. The culminating point, all things rightly related, everything good, tov, and whole, shalom. Mordecai worked in harmony, in congruence, with the providence of God, Mordecai set himself to be a man who would work toward the same things that God desires for his people and his creation. That's the lesson for us from Mordecai. Now, two specific things this means for us today. Like, I mean, right now in our circumstances, in, uh, in 2016, amidst all this interesting things going on, uh, number one, and I've mentioned this a little bit, but I want to drive it home. First lesson, with everything that happens, we can have hope in remembering that we are one step closer to things being made right. Isn't that interesting? It feels like we're further. I don't know about you, but like, it feels like we're further away from God's design than we were a year ago. And certainly more than we were three or four decades ago. It just feels that way to me. You know, some of you, you know, you, you, you've been around long enough to have seen days in our country that just maybe, maybe felt closer to God. You know, and you look back in the golden years, you know, man, the, the, if we could just go back to the 50s or, you know, what, I don't know, whatever it was, you look, re, you're, you're historians. Like, man, I wish I would have lived in a different era. There's just, it's just a strange place that we're living in now. We're moving away from God as a country. And, and, and I think there's a lot of validity to that. But here's the thing. We aren't closer right now than we were in 1952 to everything being made right. And if you think about it from that lens, rather than the woe is me lens, you can begin to have a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of hope. Now, here's the tension. It's always easier to feel that when you're looking backward rather than when you're in the middle of it. Uh, many of you in the room, maybe most of you, have experienced some deep waters in your life. Um, loss of someone very close to you, maybe a, a health issue, maybe you've been through cancer, maybe an economic struggle, disaster in your life, maybe a, a, a child that just cut you off relationally, maybe a, a marriage that was broken or some other deep, important relationship to you that was shattered. We've all been through these things, some more acutely than others. If you've been past that event long enough to have perspective, then on your good days, you can catch a glimpse of God's providence in that, in that dark circumstance, can you not? Like, you can be a little bit like the, the people of uh, Esther that would say, man, that was a hard go, but look what God did through that. But if you're in the middle of it right now, you don't see it. And, and you shouldn't feel shamed or apologetic of that. You can't. Right? The people in Esther's day, they didn't see it when they were in the middle of it. Remember, they, they were mourning. They were lamenting. They put on sackcloth and ashes, and that was the correct response. That was the right response because they said, this isn't right. Shalom is, is broken. Where's God? Where's his purposes? Where's providence? This is wrong. Now, there was one man in that Jewish context 
that had a little bit of a clue that God was working all things together for good. It was Mordecai. And I want you to flip back a few pages in your Bible to Esther chapter 4. I want you to take another look, one last look maybe, at the theme verse of the book of Esther, Esther 4 verse 14. Because you will see in this verse faith amidst dark days. Now this is Mordecai talking to Esther and challenging her to, to engage. For if you remain silent at this time, verse 14, listen to this. Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Isn't that amazing faith? Like, who's, here's a man that he's going to lose his life, yet he has such confidence that this is all part of God's plan that he can say relief and deliverance is on the way. And I don't know where it's going to come from, but it's on the way. Here's a man who understands the game's not over. God's going to win. And I believe he's even thinking, I may even die. I, I'm, I may not be around to see deliverance, but deliverance is coming. You see the eyes of faith? Remarkable. So that's lesson one. The darker things get, the harder they get. Take hope in knowing that we're not further away from God's intent. At least from a chronological standpoint, we're closer to God fulfilling his original intent for his creation. Shalom and tov, peace and goodness. Lesson two. If the first lesson was a comfort, this lesson's a challenge. Lesson two, if we are to be godly people, that means, at least in part, that we should be about the things that God is about. Think about Mordecai. Now, here's where it gets interesting. There's a lot of debate in Old Testament scholars over whether Mordecai was a really good example of a pious, devout Jew. And you're thinking, what do you mean? You know, He's like the hero of the story, or one of them. And they would say, well, yeah, maybe so, but like he never mentions God and he doesn't actually, you know, do a lot of things that God required Jewish people to do according to the law. He wasn't pious. He wasn't devout. He was maybe a more of a secular Jew. It was sort of sucked into that society. I think that has a good argument, but I will say this about Mordecai. He was a good example of being about what his God was about. He sought good, Tov. He spoke for peace, Shalom, welfare of his people. I believe each of us, if we are to be godly people, we're called to the same thing. We are called not to just sit back in our chairs and wring our hands. It's sort of like the world's going to pot all around us. We're called to engage in this somehow. Now, I've got to speak to an area of tension that I feel, and I want to sort of like relieve those of you that are thinking that this is just a... a, a guilting sermon, a drive-by guilting, as I like to say. That's not what I have in mind. Um, you and I will never bring about shalom on this earth. No, no matter how much we rally as a church, you know, even if all the churches in all the world were unified, you know, we cannot bring in the end times. Like, there's a theological perspective that teaches that. I don't think that's what the Bible says at all. I think the Bible says that shalom will never be here in full until the Prince of Shalom returns. We can't build the kingdom, okay? We just be clear on that. However, that does not mean we do nothing. 
That does not mean that we sit around and isolate ourselves and say, whoa, is me, our culture is going bad. You know, Jesus come again soon. Well, yes, Jesus come again soon. You know, save, save that part. <laughs> we want Jesus to come again soon, but we have a part to play. In other words, there's a reason through God's providence that you are here, alive, a follower of Jesus, a Christian in a day where real Christians, true Christians are getting harder and harder to find. We have a role to play, y'all. Now, what is our role? I would say it this way. Jesus called us to be his witnesses. He described us as salt on the earth. He used this analogy that we're the light of the world. You know, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So there's something here, not about doing things that usher in the new kingdom, not about doing things that bring about shalom in full, but doing things that point to what is coming and doing things that point to the one who will bring them about, who is Jesus himself. I think at least in part, that's what all those analogies mean. Salt of the earth, light of the world. In other words, and here's how I'd say it in a way that at least for me is pretty inspiring. Our job is to give a glimpse of things to come. A preview of coming attractions. It's to say, here's a taste. Here's an appetizer, if you will. Do you like, do you like this taste? It's coming through Jesus Christ. And, and it will cover the whole world. It will cover the whole earth, right? But here's a taste of it. Now, we do that through words, but I think almost even, even more profoundly in some ways, we do it through our deeds. We do it through our actions. So this is where I think we actually should, as Christians, be engaged in social justice issues. This is where I think we should be engaged in, in the uh, acute wrongness of what's happening in our society. We need to seek good and speak for completeness, shalom. You see, we need to be Mordecai's in this culture. Not because we can get the job done, not because we can change the world in that sense, but because we can offer a glimpse of something different. We can be a city on the hill. Now, what might this look like? You know, wow, there's so many different ideas. Um, let me just give you a few, and, I, and I'm gonna, whatever time we have left, I'm, I'm gonna just get you thinking about how you might engage in, in even a small way to offer a glimpse of God's original intention and his final intention for his creation. Living your life under God's authority in a way that is loving of other people, but also holy to the best of your ability. Here's the glimpse that this provides. Here is what life looks like under God's good rule. And it looks like this. God's laws are not a burden Obeying God is a privilege because he desires fullness of life for you. And here's a glimpse from my own life of what that might look like. That's the starting point only. Here's another one. How about engaging in some area in our community where there is true need? Refugees that are coming here, that, that, that are in a brand new culture with very minimal economic resources. They need friends. They need helpers. They need someone to link arms with them. Here's what that is saying to the society. Here is a small space in our community where mercy and compassion exists, just as will be true in the coming days when Christ returns. How about this one? Your marriage is really, really hard and it's unfair, and it's not right, and you're having to fight for your life just to hold it together, and you're not even sure if you want to, how about keeping on? 
keeping on, keeping on, longing for a day where it may get easier, putting the work into it so that you can proclaim to your friends and family and neighbors, here's what a broken marriage put back together looks like because all things will be healed and reconciled on the new earth to come. Here's another one, unity in our body. Wouldn't we love to proclaim to Williamson County and greater Nashville Here is what unity under the authority of Christ looks like. Regardless of disagreements, we're united under what matters. And then one more, this whole racial tension that we're struggling with right now as a nation, it's a real thing. And we need to prayerfully engage in it. What would it look like for you to have even just one relationship in your life that would be a glimpse of all things made new? a glimpse of reconciliation, a glimpse of love and fellowship and unity together across racial barriers. Just one relationship to show the world, look, it can be like this. In fact, this is what's coming when all things are made new when Jesus returns. Here's a sample. Here's a foretaste of shalom. Uh, I I finished the sermon last night here and I had a guy come up to me and he said, he had tears in his eyes. He said, listen, I've been working on this technological solution that will provide closed captioning live for sermons when preachers speak so that those who have broken hearing or a hard of hearing in some ways can see every word on their devices as it comes through in closed captioning, real time, live time while the preacher is speaking. And he said, tonight was the very first time that we piloted it and it happened to be with this sermon. This is the way that I am giving a glimpse of things to come when everyone will be able to hear and understand and see completely. There will be no individuals who cannot hear and cannot see. I don't think it's an unfair question for me to ask you this morning. In what ways are your energy and your efforts aligned with God's work in the world? Good, peace, wholeness, completeness, always pointing to the one and the only one who will bring those things. So this is how I'd like us to close our service this morning is I want us to sing one more time. It's a song that's been very carefully chosen. I'm gonna pray and then we'll sing. And through the words of this song, remind us that there's only one who can bring about peace. There's only one who can bring about wholeness. There is only one answer to these problems. And, and, And how about, men and women, that us as Christians the one that represents that one, the ones that represent that one, how about if we enter into the fray? Just a little bit. You you ever thought of that? We're actually Christians. The body of Christ, we are the hands and feet of the only one who can bring about hope and bring about peace. And we must not be silent and we must not sit back. Father, we thank you for your love for us. I pray that your body, men and women, would feel hope, that they would feel encouragement, and through your spirit, there would even be a sense of challenge and admonishment for us. Father, I pray that they would understand and know uh, your love for them and the purpose that you have called them to be loved by you. It's not just for them. It is for your glory and for the sake of the world. And so as we sing these songs about Jesus, who is the only one who will bring about lasting peace. We long for him to come again. May we, with our words and our deeds, point people to him. May glimpses 
of the coming kingdom show up in our relationships, in our efforts, in our service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.